Hey, you are tuned in to a podcast from the 23rd of May, and this is Britt D from resistradio.com, and I'm happy to be joined again by Tom Secker of resistingtheterror.com. Hi again, Tom. Hi, Britt. Are you enjoying this freakishly hot weather? It is, it is hot. The the, uh, the grassy knolls of Yorkshire are very, very warm today, I've got to say. Indeed, indeed. So we've got a few topics we'd like to talk about tonight. Um, we want to talk about the death of Alan McGrahi, first of all, I think. And then we'd like to talk about the widow of 7-7 London bomber, Samantha Luthwaite, who's currently a wanted woman in Kenya, apparently. And then we'd like to finally go on to maybe discuss some details in the Anders Bering Breivik uh, case. So let's start with the the so-called Lockerbie uh, bomber, Al McGrahi, who, of course, uh, died on Sunday. So, um, yeah, Tom, what are, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? I mean, there are so many different angles you can take on it, but where would you like to start with that? Well, I'll start, um, if, I, if I can, with a, um, a little story that... You remember back in, I think it was, was it in 2009 when they released McGrahi in the, I think it was in mid 2009. I could be wrong about that. Um, and this was supposedly on compassionate grounds because he was ill and he was, you know, he only had three months to live and all the rest of it. And presumably if he's lived till now, that gave him, I mean, it's been at least two years, at least, at least two and a half years. It must be even more than that, that he's lived beyond this point of being released. Yeah. But, but, but back when this happened, a, um, a friend of mine in who lives up in Scotland and he teaches English as a foreign language to you know foreign students mm-hmm. um and one of the lads that he was teaching English to was a friend of McGrahi's son right mm-hmm. so this is kind of third hand information but it's quite reliable third hand information and he told me at the time you know cuz you know, we were chatting about this because, I mean, McGrahi was imprisoned in Scotland because Lockerbie's in Scotland. And, you know, that was sort of how, how the whole thing panned out. Um, and it was supposedly the Scottish uh, justice system that made the decision to release him. And it had absolutely nothing to do with British oil companies. No, no, it had nothing to do with that. OK. Um, anyway, <laughs> this, this, friend, this friend of mine, you know, tells me at the time, he said, you know, this is nonsense. The guy's not that ill he's he's certainly going to be alive for quite a long time um after the you know he after the three months or so that they're giving him to live um and obviously at the time i didn't know that that was true i mean i, I sort of took this guy at his word if he says that he's teaching this lad who's friends with McGrahy's son then presumably that's what the story that was actually told and i i, I when i wrote an article about this on on my old blog um, I did stick in a bit about this. So, you know, I'm not making this up. This is some, you know, genuinely information I was given back then. Didn't really know what to make of it. But, you know, over time, it's completely proven to be true. So, I mean, one thing is abundantly clear now is that he wasn't anywhere near as sick as they were pretending he was because um, he survived, you know, he survived a war in Libya. He survived, you know, months of NATO bombardments and he's survived months since that sort of technically finished Mm. um so the whole story about him you know being at death's door and having to be released because he was sort of on the on the verge of death uh clearly isn't true and it does open up this this whole other sort of set of of rather grim possibilities here uh obviously i was being sarcastic before about oil companies a lot of this probably does have to do with oil deals there were oil deals being struck around that time yeah um, but it's it's strange, isn't it, that that was going on. Um, we'd we'd had uh, Gaddafi over to Britain, and and we'd gone and visited him in Libya, and we'd obviously struck some deals and come to some kind of negotiation, sort of in the wake of when he handed Megrahi over in the first place. Um, sort of our relations, British Libyan relations, got quite a lot better. Um. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so what is it that really changed? I mean, that's one question that kind of still shouts out at me, and you know, with this in the news recently, is you know, what what changed and when? Yeah. How did it go from this rather cordial relationship in, into bombing the hell out of the place? Yeah, I mean, I've always um, thought the theory about the the oil de- deals were slightly broad, to be honest, and I I wondered myself whether he was released 
um, as some kind of cover, basically, because it was pretty obvious that the guy was innocent. And I mean, I don't know, I don't know a massive amount of detail about this case. I have to be honest, but it does seem to me that possibly he was released because he was going to appeal or something like this, and then all kinds of you know um, people who were higher up in the British government would be implicated in all kinds of dodgy things. Is that a possibility here? Do you think? What you mean that they released him to avoid his appeal? Yeah. So that he, so that he couldn't then appeal against. I mean, there'd be no point him then appealing because he'd be free. Just because you know, loads more information would come out if it went to if he if it went to, to trial, basically, and uh, you know maybe uh, there are lots of people who wanted to kind of keep that hush hush. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, it's a distinct possibility because he certainly was going to appeal and it's extremely likely that his appeal would have been successful because the case against him is is so weak. I mean, mm. Keelan um, of, of widechat.co.uk, he's, he's done quite a lot of coverage on this yeah. um, and really, you know, nailed it down in a few of his shows and articles and things as to just just how flimsy and ridiculous the prosecution case against McGrahi was. He, he never should have been convicted as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. Um and then they, they, what was it, the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission uh, released their very lengthy report into all of this, uh, oh, I don't know, a month or two ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they very much were looking at this and saying, you know, this case, this case is dodgy. This case is based on paid up off witnesses. It's based on forensic physical evidence that either wasn't found at the scene or we now know was planted at the scene or doesn't match up with what they say it should be because it's the wrong color, you know, timing board within the bomb. And, you know, dozens and dozens of these problems. Yeah. I mean, McGrahi himself does not seem to be um, he wasn't an angel. But it's also pretty clear he didn't bomb Pan Am 103. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, it's entirely possible that as a way of kind of seeing off the problem of I mean, if he appeals, if he'd appealed and that appeal had been successful and he is then, you know, uh, exonerated as the Lockerbie bomber, you've basically got an unsolved mass murder, you know, nearly 300 people. And yeah. they basically said the one guy that we got actually now it looks like he didn't do it. Yeah. So you're you're then left with, well, who the hell was it? Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of theories. There's all kinds of speculation about Lockerbie. And I'm not um, I'm not well educated enough in the case to really stick my neck out and say what I think happened there. Um, I am aware of all these different theories, the um, the Interfor report and, and this whole notion about the, the CIA having a, a drug smuggling operation that a second CIA team kind of found out about and so they bombed the plane to take out the second CIA team and keep the whole thing hush hush mm-hmm. and you know, entirely possible certainly not beyond the capability or ethics of the CIA to do something like that for that sort of reason mm-hmm. um, but not something I think we've ever had any solid proof of, but exactly those sorts of questions and those sorts of theories, it would just be a kind of big stoke in the fire of all that if McGrahi had to be, you know, if they had to admit that he, he was actually innocent and that he didn't do it. Yeah. And so now he's dead. And so now you can have all of this, you know, Lockerbie bomber dies um, and the whole story becomes about well, why, they, why did they release him? He was obviously not as ill as he, he pretended to be or blah, 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 blah. And the whole point's being missed. The whole point is that you know he didn't do it, which means someone else did. Yeah. And whoever, whoever else did do it is presumably still out there and possibly yeah. doing other similar things. I mean, who knows? But you know, that's the story here. Mm-hmm. But that's the story you, you won't find anywhere in the mainstream. Um, they'll all just keep on referring to him as the Lockerbie bomber. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's disgraceful, really. The number of people who are still, you know, calling him a mass murderer. And, I mean, I talked about in a show I did the other day some of the reactions from uh, uh, victims' relatives. I mean, understandably, they're angry, angry that they've lost a loved one. But, you know, there's been some really nasty stuff coming out and people saying that they hoped he, he died in pain and things like this. And it's like, hang on a minute. I mean, have you actually looked at the evidence? Um, but yeah, this has just been, you know, perpetuated in the mainstream media. It's just one of those things, isn't it, that people just are told and they just simply accept that he did it. End of story. When that's simply not the case. You know, it's it's outrageous, really, but happens so often. Um, I mean, yeah, you can understand though where the families are coming from because they've been kind of, I mean, they've suffered this this horrible tragic loss of 
mm-hmm. in some cases more than one family member mm-hmm. um, in the most kind of shocking circumstances. You know, you get a phone call, plane's blown up, they're dead. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a very, very difficult thing for anyone to have to kind of go through and try and process in some way. So it's not surprising that they are behaving irrationally. Um, but they've also, you know, there has been a concerted effort and there always is in the aftermath of major terrorist attacks to kind of corral the um, the survivors and, and the bereaved towards very much towards the official story, towards the you know desired culprit, the desired scapegoat for the attack. Yeah. Um, and that very much has happened with Lockerbie. I mean, particularly in the press, mm-hmm. um, the press have been you know savagely. Uh, you know, very savage about Lockerbie ever since it happened, and sort of pretending to be demanding justice in the name of the the, the families uh, of the victims, but in reality, it's it's just kind of political propaganda and rather yeah. cynical, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Propaganda. Yeah, and this propaganda even continued up until um, the overthrow of Gaddafi. One of the headlines, I think, in that terrible rag, the sun was a, um, a headline uh, that's for Lockerbie. You know, so this uh, this was used right up until um, Gaddafi's you know murder, basically. Now, now another um, another theory about who actually did the Lockerbie bombing, which you know sounds fairly plausible to me, is one that uh, Robert Fisk talked about in an article that he put out on Sunday, and that's that this was actually carried out by uh, Lebanese terrorists on behalf of Iran as some kind of uh, retaliation for the shooting out of the air of an Iranian passenger jet in 1989 uh, by the U.S. Uh, ship, the, the Vin- Vincennes, I think its name is. Um, have you heard about that theory and what are your thoughts about that? And a further question, I mean, I've thought maybe is it a possibility that in future they could use this against Iran to say, OK, maybe we were wrong here and maybe this, maybe Iran had something to do with this. And I believe Syria has also been implicated in in this theory because apparently this was plotted in Damascus, uh, so they say. Is it a possibility that at some future point this could be, you know, used as uh, propaganda against Iran or Syria? Because I'm rather surprised that you know it hasn't been so far. Um, yeah, f- fair question. Certainly, fair question. Um, well, I'll start by sort of talking about uh, another possibility, mm-hmm. and that that has occurred to me i'm not kind of putting this out there as a this is definitely what i think happened it's just one of those things that occurred to me when i was like i say trying to figure out you know what what changed in this relationship between britain and libya and how it developed over time Mm -hmm. was that maybe part of the point of releasing megrahi uh was to create a public outcry and a public backlash because they were all, you know, sort of saying, how, how dare you release this, this mass murderer right, when he's only served, you know, whatever, seven or eight years of his sentence, something mm-hmm. really ridiculous if he had actually killed 300 people. Um, and maybe that was actually in a really nasty and forward looking kind of way, the start of the campaign against Libya. Mm-hmm. OK. Um, so, and then you have the, you know, the punchline to that is that that article you mentioned um that front page of the, I think, yeah, I think you're right. It was the Sun newspaper. Where it's, that's for Lockerbie. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the uh, the thing coming full circle. The story having a nice rounded ending to it. Yeah. Um, whether that's what what uh, that's why they actually released McGrath. I, I I don't know. I'm just saying that's a kind of that's one of the things that occurred to me in looking at this and trying to draw some sense and some narrative out of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I've certainly heard of the Iranian thing. Um, the as I remember, it was it was during the Iran-Iraq war. The Americans were patrolling the Persian Gulf or the mouth of the Persian Gulf to prevent um, prevent the two of them from I don't know shipping in weapons and and using fighter aircraft against each other. I can't quite remember exactly why the the U.S. warship was there, but yeah, it shoots down this Iranian passenger plane. Mm-hmm. Um, the Americans claim it was an accident, and maybe it was an accident. It is always possible. I mean, you know, the U.S. military is pretty gung-ho and they do shoot the wrong people quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unheard of. It's not sort of an un- unrealistic that it was unintentional. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, it's entirely possible that this, this was some kind of revenge attack by the Iranians, the Iranian state. And they do have all kinds of 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not at all on board with obviously attacking Iran or anything like that, not militarily attacking Iran. I'm, uh, I think that's an abominable idea. I think that would be absolutely tragic. And uh, like a lot of people say, it would probably lead to World War Three. Um, but at the same time, I'm not blind to the fact that the Iranian state has had all kinds of ties with various terrorist groups for a long, 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 long time. Um, they're probably not as vicious and as kind of international, if you like, as the CIA's ties to terrorist groups or MI6 or or the sort of the NATO block. But, you know, it isn't a, a NATO phenomenon that states sponsor terrorism. I mean, pretty much every major state you can think of will have sponsored terrorists at some time. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, it's, it's a distinct possibility. Um, would that could they now flip this round and use it as a um, a sort of part of the whole push to war? Maybe so. I mean, they they have kind of done that with nine eleven a bit, haven't they? They have on odd occasions they've had sort of ex CIA people supposedly independent, but as if anyone who's ex CIA and talking in the media is actually independent, <laughs> um, uh, you know believe that you believe anything uh-huh. um but they've had those sort of you know coming out and saying oh well maybe you know maybe it wasn't just al-qaeda maybe there were there was a much larger conspiracy and then pointing the finger at iran or yeah some, something like that they've they've tried to tie that in and it makes absolutely no sense why on earth would al-qaeda be involved with iran it's just it's like why would al-qaeda be involved with iraq it just it, it that's all part of the myth making but yeah you're right because they've done that kind of thing there's always the possibility that they now say, actually, maybe Libya wasn't behind Lockerbie and a bunch of people who kind of know that's true go, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then they try and corral all those people towards the, oh, no, it was actually Iran. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's possible. Yes. Um, so do you think we're ever going to find out the truth about what actually happened? Because Cameron made it quite clear that there's not going to be a, a reinvestigation into uh, the Lockerbie bombing. Which, you know, kind of, well, I mean, it's, it's not surprising, but on the other hand, it is, uh, you know, very surprising because there, it's such a, as you said, a weak case against um, McGrahi that it really does need another investigation. But do you think we'll ever, ever get to the truth? Uh, only if something much bigger than has happened so far um, happens, because there's a whole bunch of these cases that have stacked up and some of them we are obviously a bit more certain than others that the official culprits just didn't do it um and i've you know i've come after after many years of of research and trying to be as generous as possible towards the home office's version of 77 you know i've come to the conclusion that those four guys just didn't do it Mm -hmm. um so like mcgrahi like so many that, that we could talk about, but the Yvonne Fletcher case, are we ever going to get to, to any kind of truth on that? Mm. Um, it's possible. You know, we've got to, we've got to look at the, the historical examples where we have managed to get somewhere whereby public pressure and usually what it takes is some kind of pressure from some of the victims' families as well. Yeah. Um, we, we have managed to get somewhere. You have, the Gladio thing in Italy, and not just in Italy, but that's where the major revelations came out. They actually, you know, had a whole series of trials where they'd convicted the wrong people. Largely, they'd convicted anarchists and communists and other other left wingers, um, and they actually released them and ended up convicting at least some of the right people, um, most of which were neo-fascists or, you know, intelligence agents or something. Yeah. Um, so it is possible, you know, we've got. We've got to not be downcast and, and pessimistic about this. This has happened before, and it's happened, you know, in a, basically in our lifetimes. So it's not something we should just give up on. Um, but at the same time, we've got to be realistic and say we've got a whole series of these cases stacked up now. And perhaps, in fact, what we really, really need um, is a sort of consolidation of all of this, because... I'm not necessarily saying they're all interconnected or the same people are behind all of these things, not not by a long chalk. But there is a pattern emerging here where political violence, usually in the form of terrorism, takes place. And so many times the, the wrong culprits are blamed. And usually within a matter of years, it's established that they are the wrong culprits. 
Um, some some of the time they wind up dead, other times they wind up in jail. But you know, whatever. Uh, and and I think we need to kind of try and fold all these things into one another because collectively, I think there's a much better case for a pattern of cover-ups, at the very least, if not a pattern of complicity, a pattern of cover-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, the, if you like, that's the, the best argument we can make. If we try and make an argument about, you know, who who really did Lockerbie, who really did 7-7, um, we can, I, I think we shoot ourselves in the foot quite often when we engage in that. Not always, I'm not saying it's it's a fruitless thing to do. I'm just saying, if we're actually trying to achieve some kind of measurable uh, political result then I think our best arguments are about the cover-ups that have happened and collectively what they show about how the state responds to terrorist attacks Mm -hmm. rather than going around saying the state did it I mean the state may have done it in some cases probably did but that's not the strongest argument we can make and not the one that's going to uh, reach the, the largest number of people Mm-hmm. So we try and reach the largest number of people to get the largest amount of support behind the thing. So yeah. that's kind of that's kind of what I'm driving at. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one of the good things in this case is that you know there are a number of high-profile people who are, you know, questioning uh, whether McGrahi actually did this. Uh, I mean, you know, really high-profile people, uh, Chomsky for one, and I think the Archbishop of Canterbury is another one. And of course, he's got Jim Swire as well, um, who's you know tirelessly campaigning basically so there are certainly yeah high up people who are pushing for some kind of reinvestigation but yeah i take your point that you know this is kind of representative of you know a whole load of of different cases isn't it and cover-ups basically well and throw in another one that links on to the next bit that we're going to talk about with uh, samantha luthwaite Mm -hmm. um the the patrick finucan case the the uh Belfast civil uh, human rights lawyer who defended both loyalists and republicans during the the dirty war in Northern Ireland Um, and he was killed by a bunch of loyalist terrorists who were basically hand in hand with the British state Um, you had one of the gunmen was I think a uh, FRU informant um, the, uh, sorry, the, the Force Research Unit, the sort of British military intelligence in Northern Ireland, certainly the guy who was sort of responsible for the surveillance and the choosing of targets and the sort of strategy of attack and, and, and that whole aspect of it, he was definitely connected to the FRU. You also had, you know, other people who were Northern Ireland special branch police informers. You had sort of, you know, implications of connections to MI5. And you can, you can find all of this. I mean, not, none of this is sort of controversial now. Some of these people have been court and, and slung in prison and admitted that they were you know state informers and state agents of some kind so the whole thing you know not only it's not just a suspicion anymore it is it's it's right there in black and white that this is somehow connected to the state and presumably they decided this guy was the enemy of the state um this is in fact why we have the inquiries act in this country it, it's because of the patrick finucan case because you had the um in 2000 2004 you had the Corey inquiry which was a, a Canadian judge called Peter Corey who conducted a, a massive investigation into the whole question of collusion in various things to do with Northern Ireland to do with the war in Northern Ireland um, and basically concluded there was massive and widespread collusion particularly in the Finucane case and he brought out several murders and several terrorist attacks and said you know these basically demand a proper full public inquiry this isn't something that can just be left to be sorted out by the inner bureaucracies and then the following year what do the labor government do they pass the inquiries act which renders all such public inquiries a complete waste of time you know they're now just completely controlled by the state um so the Finucane case is important. You know, like I say, that's why we have the Inquiries Act, and that's why we're now in a position where public inquiries are a waste of time under mm-hmm. that legislation, at least anyway. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of these cases. There is very much a pattern, and it's it's a very obvious and repetitive pattern in British history, not not just in British history, in American history, and in a bunch of other countries as well. But it's 
you know, it's very distinct in, in Britain. It doesn't seem to matter who the terrorists are, who we're supposed to be fighting. There is a, a pattern of covering up after the violence happens. Mm-hmm. OK, well, let's move on to another story in which there could possibly be some kind of covert intelligence operation going on. And this is the case of Samantha Luthwaite. Now, Samantha Luthwaite is the widow of 7-7 London bomber Jermaine Lindsay. Now, I'm calling him the 7-7 London bomber because that's, you know, what he's sort of widely known as. And I know that you don't believe he actually did that. And, you know, I've got a lot of questions as well. But for the sake of... and fundamentally, I think we should try and get into the habit of saying alleged bomber, because okay. that's all he is. That's fair enough. Um, um, that, yeah, I mean, apart from that, I, have, I don't have a problem with what you're saying. <laughs> that's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> so so she's, she's the, the widow of, uh, of alleged um, 7-7 London bomber Jermaine Lindsay. Um, I think she, well, she was married to him, and I believe they had a, a child together. And at the time, she claimed not to know anything at all about what her husband has been accused of doing which is carrying out the the london you know one of the london bombings i believe he is alleged yeah, Piccadilly, to... the piccadilly line one the the king's cross russell square yeah bombing. that was the most devastating bombing i think by some distance yeah, yeah. um yeah so she, she she denied basically knowing anything and i think she kind of went to ground after that but the latest story is that she basically left the country in the, the years following um, 7-7. And in this time, as well as her protesting her innocence, I think a number of her family members also said they simply didn't believe that you know she knew anything about it. Of course, you could say they would say that. But hmm. anyway, she um, yeah, apparently she, she fled the country. And the latest story is that she's being... Uh, chased by terrorism, anti-terrorism police in Kenya, and she's accused of f- basically being the funder of of an, an Al Qaeda cell, who were planning to um, set off some bombs at tourist hotels in I can't remember whether it's Mom- uh, was it Nairobi? I can't remember which city it was in actually. Um, I think it was Nairobi. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, the story is that uh, she was the funder of, of of the people who were planning this. There's one guy who's currently on trial at the moment. Apparently they found ingredients which they allege were being, you know, prepared to, to make a, an explosive device. After they got this guy, apparently they went to Samantha Luthwaite's flat. Um, they raided her flat and apparently she just managed to escape just before they got there uh, with three kids in tow, apparently. <laughs> um, so, she, so she, somehow she manages to escape with with these three kids. You know this this white this white woman in Kenya, um, and now apparently she's she's travelled um, to uh, Somalia, and um, she's sort of being protected by Al Shabaab terrorists. Is is the story here? I think they've released an image from a video camera at some border crossing showing a woman who, I mean, does resemble pictures that we've, we've seen of Samantha Luthwaite, but the whole thing just sounds so uh, suspicious and unlikely to me. I mean, for a start, how was she able to, you know, basically leave Britain without being under some kind of surveillance? How would, you, you know, how could she possibly freely travel around um, Africa? Um, where's this money coming from that she's supposedly being being given to these giving mm. to these terrorists mm. and i think i mean there is a distinct possibility that you know at following 77 she could have been put under some kind of pressure by the british intelligence services and she's possibly you know operating as a, a provocateur or some kind of you know some kind of intelligence asset i mean what what do you think about all of this tom because you've obviously researched uh, seven seven in, in great depth. Well, yeah, I mean, she she's supposed to be the um, what well, was the wife of of Jermaine Lindsay. Um, I find the, the sort of either notion seems to be a bit odd. Either the notion of her being an actual terrorism funder or some sort of sort of funder and facilitator of terrorist groups, 
that's a pretty bizarre notion for a you know white woman with three kids running around East Africa. But to be honest, so is the idea of her being an intelligence agent for exactly the same reason. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just saying we've got to, we've got to be even handed here about mm. this. The whole story is is bizarre in the extreme. Yeah. Um, it just. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is quite baffling. It's, I mean, it's entirely possible that, um, that she had intelligence connections and not just, um, not just after 7-7. I mean, the, the story you're kind of offering, um, kind of speculating here that, you know, perhaps she was pressured into this or, or they somehow, you know, I don't know, threatened her th- with throwing her in prison for failing to warn, warn us about 7-7 or something yeah. like that. Um, <clears throat> And her task was to sort of go off and, and create this story or create these actions in, in the East Africa. That, you know, entirely possible. Of course it is. Um, actually, that connects up with something I touched upon in, in my second film, uh, 7-7 Crime and Prejudice. Um, this Mohammed Hamid paintballing case where a bunch of Muslim guys basically were going off camping and on paintballing trips and they accused them of training terrorism training and slunk most of them in prison <clears throat> but one of the guys um in fact the only guy who went to trial and wasn't convicted he gave an interview to the bbc where he said that you know after he'd been arrested they uh you know the spooks the mi5 came and sort of visited him and said look we know you're not a terrorist but you know we can help you mm-hmm. as though they were sort of offering him you know it's either you go through the legal process and maybe end up in jail or you can come and work for us okay so yeah. You know, it's not in any way a sort of radical notion that that they might be up to that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. in fact, if you if you read the right U.S. military manuals and British intelligence manuals and things, you actually find this as one of their kind of key, uh, if you like, counterinsurgency strategies. That this is what you do with enemy combatants. You either offer them the the opportunity to switch sides, or you you know say, well, you're going to have to face the firing squad. Yeah. Um, because the so, guy, the guy who's uh, sorry, the, the, guy who's on, the guy who's currently on trial um, in Kenya is actually a British guy. So, I mean, I don't know what that means really. But if the British state were trying to entrap people, then they would presumably be more interested in you know British British people. Well, and as yeah, we, I mean, we've seen as they've sort of expanded the notion of. Uh, the cauldron of Islamic militancy. For a long time, it was the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and that's all they would really talk about, that that was, you know, where all the terrorism was coming from. Yeah. But slowly, that it's sort of broadened out, and you've got um, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the sort of North African Islamists, if you like, and you've got al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who are obviously in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of spreading, and this notion that they're trying to put across to us of where what the terrorists are where they're coming from that's very much expanded you know across that whole stretch basically from sort of north west africa all the way around to pakistan more or less yeah Um, so this may be part of just you know expanding the myth expanding decentralizing the the notion of the threat so that you can therefore expand our response to the supposed threat yeah um that seems to be why they're pushing it in that direction. So it, it could all be just about sort of creating part of that legend and part of that story. Um, but yeah, the other possibility, the, the, what I was going to say is that it, it's possible um, she was actually working for intelligence all along. And by all along, I mean even before 7-7. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was actually, she is actually an, an army brat. She is the daughter of a, of a British military guy. Yeah. Um, who was serving in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. at the time that she was born. I'm okay. not sure if he was in military intelligence or anything, but frankly, if he was in the military in Northern Ireland, he was part of the dirty war in some way or another. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that, you know, I mean, look at it this way. What are the odds that the daughter of someone who served in Britain's last great war on terror, which had lots and lots of state collusion in the terrorism, what are the odds that she then turns up as the wife of one of only four men to be Brit- supposedly Britain's first suicide bombers? Mm, that is a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, is there not a more likely explanation here? Yeah. Um, and, and in particular, I'm, I was actually chatting to Bridget of um, 
the July 7th group the other day um, about some of this and various things. Uh, and she sort of reminded me of this and we were kind of uh, saying that it, what's particularly curious when you look at the sort of history of where the probable agents uh, in the history of the 7-7 alleged bombers, you know, where these guys turn up, most of them, and I'm talking about Mohammed Junaid Barbar, Martin McDade, and a guy known as Q, Mohammed Koyam Khan, Q, mm-hmm. uh, they largely connect up to Sadiq Khan, Shazad Tanweer, and Haseeb Hussain, the three Pakistani lads from Leeds. Um, they largely intersect with those three. And that kind of leaves Jermaine Lindsay a bit out of that story. There really isn't much in terms of the talk of intelligence failures, which is all a kind of code word, it seems, for covert operations. Um, it leaves Jermaine Lindsay a bit out in the cold. He's down in Aylesbury, married to this uh, this, this white girl, and they've got kids together. And, you know, at least from what you can tell from the photographs, seemed pretty happy together. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is... Just, I'm just presenting this again as a possibility um, that if those three, Hussein, Tanweer and Sadiq Khan, were somehow set up as part of this other thing going on up in Leeds and over in Crawley and, and whatnot, then maybe the way Lindsay got you know, hooked into this thing is through Samantha Luthwaite. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but... It is a possibility that's occurred to me. It's certainly yeah. the most likely kind of connection that we could make because, like I say, she was she's the daughter of a British military guy. Now, do you have any historical examples of people being recruited within families uh, to, to carry out these kinds of operations? Ooh, good question. Because <laughs> that would uh, obviously be you know, useful to, to support this, this theory that she was indeed recruited by her own father or, you know, the people that he was working for. <laughs> Um, I guess you wouldn't really find out about that kind of thing too easily. <laughs> well, and, I, and I'm, to be honest, there's there's so many different people that I'm now that are now kind of rushing through my head, and I'm trying to think who who okay. were, who were their parents, where what was their actual connection. Uh-huh. Um, certainly, there are notorious um, family connections running through a lot of this stuff. One that one that actually that is a bit kind of tangential um is a cia guy known as richard blee do you know who, who richard blee is richard I don't. Blee. um right this all it, it's all about 9-11 basically you have this meeting in malaysia in january of 2000 i think it's in malaysia um of various supposed sort of Al-Qaeda dignitaries, if you like, bigwigs in Al-Qaeda. Um, and this is supposedly the where they plan the 9-11 attack. This is sort of the, the, one of the key points. And the CIA are monitoring all of this. But for some reason, when they get in touch with the FBI in America to tell them about this, ne- they neglect to mention that two of the guys at the meeting... Khalid Almadar and um, Nawaf al-Hazmi have gone to America. They just tell the FBI there was this meeting. They were talking about whatever they were talking about. Um, they don't bother to tell them that two of these guys have immediately then gone off yeah, and turned up in America. So the FBI are not in any way aware that they should then be watching these two guys. And supposedly these two guys then are among the hijackers for Flight 77 that supposedly flies into the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> One of the big questions that came out of this was why? Why did the CIA not tell the FBI the most critical bit of the information that two of these guys are on their way to America? Because, you know, a bunch of guys having a meeting in, you know, halfway around the world in East Asia, the FBI is going to kind of look at that and think, well, okay, thanks for telling us, but there's nothing urgent that we need to do in response. Whereas you tell them, and two of the guys have now immediately flown to America, the FBI are going to say, right, we need to put these two guys under surveillance. You know, it's it's the most critical bit of the whole story. Why didn't the CIA tell them? Mm. And according, even according to the 9-11 Commission, the CIA didn't tell them on purpose. Okay. Um, and it's in one of the footnotes, and there's like interviews with Tom Keane, the chairman of the 9-11 Commission, saying, yeah, yeah, we, this, they did this on purpose. They deliberately withheld this information from the FBI. 
And the guy who withheld it is a guy called Richard Blee, who was high up in the counterterrorism in the CIA at that time and then turns up in Afghanistan and various other places. And Richard Blee is the son. He is a CIA brat. Uh, He is the son of a very senior guy in the CIA's directorate of of operations back in the 60s and 70s. Uh So... It's not exactly what you're, what you're asking about, but yeah, there's that kind of feel to these things that sometimes, you know, if someone has a son or daughter and they think they'd probably, you know, be, be useful in the agency in some way or in the MI5 in some way, or, you know, maybe let's get them in and, and have a talk to them and see how they feel about it. Okay. And of course, it's perfectly logical. I mean, yeah. where, where are you going to get your military intelligence people from? Where are you going to get your MI5 people from? Yeah. You want people who are going to be loyal to the British state. Yeah. Now, the people who tend to be the most loyal to the British state are relatives of military people or relatives of police officers or something. Yeah, absolutely. And also you have another person who you could use if these people you know, were in danger of betraying you or something. They would be like double the... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It gives you leverage. Double the dirt. <laughs> leverage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it, yeah. Interesting stuff. So we'll have to definitely keep our eye on that story. Um, so maybe we'll move on to the, the final story tonight, and that's the ongoing trial of Anders Bering uh, Breivik in Norway. Um, I mean, at the moment in the trial, they're actually going over the, the kind of uh, grisly details of his actual shootings on the island of Atoya. Um, we've been hearing lots of details about from the autopsy reports and, you know, really... Um, disturbing details from people who survived the shooting on the island. Um, there hasn't been a, a great deal of information to come out of that to further advance my theories that we discussed not too long ago. Tom, what about yourself? Have you sort of been thinking about this in more detail or what, what are your thoughts on this case? Well, um, one thing that I have noticed is that the the media coverage, or at least the mainstream media coverage, seems to have dropped off a bit. They yeah. were very, I mean, this tends to happen in trials, to be honest, but, um, you know, they were very big, you know, when Breivik was first taking the stand and doing his, you know, all his crap about how he was, this was self-defense and how he was compelled to do this and had no choice and it was inevitable. And, you know, they loved putting that all that stuff out and all these pictures of him looking like a psycho. <laughs> you know, they, they were having a field day with that aspect of the trial, but... I mean, okay, fair enough. Maybe the the grisly details of how all these poor kids died on the island isn't, I mean, shouldn't be reported on quite so much. But it is noticeable that, you know, that's the bit of the trial they were really concerned with and they're not kind of so interested in almost any of the other parts. We'll see if if that then comes back when we approach the verdict. I mean, there's still going to be... As far as I know, there's still testimony for about another month, and yeah. then there's probably going to be two, three weeks of deliberations while they figure out what they're actually going to do with this guy. Yeah. Um, so what do you I think? Did, I did, sorry, go on. I was just going to ask why you think that might be, this this drop-off in media interest. Um, it is partly just the way the news agenda works. They tend to report on the initial bits of, of a trial where the prosecution is presenting their main bit of the case and, you know, where they, the opening argument of the defence, and because usually they want to pick holes in the defence and make out that the person's guilty. You, you find this an awful lot in, in trial reporting on any kind of trial. It doesn't matter whether the offence is trivial or, or deadly serious like this one, um, that they, they give the prosecution case far more coverage than they ever give the defence case. But in this case, there, you know, there, is, there isn't much of a defence, so it's not really about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also that, as we were talking about before, everyone's tried to kind of exploit this attack, or at least exploit the fear and anxiety and confusion that has resulted from the attack for their own agenda and for their own agenda that existed before the attack even happened. Very few people have actually said, this has given me pause for thought and I'm actually going to have to reassess some things in light of this. Almost everyone's just sort of used it to trumpet what they were already saying. Um, so I think maybe there's there's an element of that, that all, as far as the media are concerned, this trial isn't about a guy who killed a bunch of people and what's going to happen to him. This trial is about 
a name that they can stick on in their headlines to draw attention to a story which says what they want it to say mm-hmm. that's you know gets their message across that it, it's just a kind of another flag to or another tag to kind of draw people's attention to something i don't think most people who are actually reporting on this in the mainstream give a toss mm-hmm. quite frankly um i think they are just they just see it as a another opportunity to say whatever it is that they feel they've got to say mm-hmm. okay i mean there have been a few interesting details we talked before about the high chance that you know the kids on the island were very uh, confused and shocked and you know their testimonies aren't perhaps evidence of you know conclusive evidence of anything mm. um you know anything untoward untoward yeah. or even more untoward than what what happened um but I mean, I'm sure you picked up on, on the point that a few witnesses have talked about believing there were multiple people involved, um, which had been talked about before. But mm-hmm. particularly in the last week, there was uh, one girl who said she thought she heard foreign voices um, and she was she thought it, they were his accomplices, basically. And I'm not saying that's what happened, but I just think it's worthwhile to include that in in a discussion because you can't you know you can't rule it out basically no no we shouldn't we shouldn't be ruling things out no 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 um didn't she um didn't she sort of say that's what she thought was going on but she kind of later realized or i mean maybe realized is the wrong word because that means that you know she's decided that that it's not true um that she sort of thought then thought that these were actually the screams of, of or shouts of people who were under attack and who were being shot at. That's what she said. Um, yeah. But I mean, if I'm, I'm not. Well, that's what I'm saying is that, you know, maybe that's how she then processed that. Yeah. Um, or maybe that is, in fact, exactly what happened. Difficult, difficult to say. But no, no, you're right. We shouldn't be ruling this thing out just because I mean, I'm skeptical towards it just because we I always want something a bit more to go on than. Mm-hmm eyewitnesses who are very close to the event because eyewitnesses who are caught up in the middle of these things are usually pretty bad eyewitnesses and that applies whether you're talking about them claiming there was only one shooter or whether you're talking about them claiming there's multiple shooters i don't think you can use their testimony as solid evidence either way for either theory um so yeah yeah it's there certainly have been some comments in the trial um that are suggestive of that and sort of indicate that kind of at least that they suspected that that was what was happening, even if they didn't actually see a second shooter or, or something as solid as that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, enti- it's still entirely possible. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I've been reading through um, the translation of the, the trial testimony that you actually sent me the link to. I mean, it's it's pretty tough going sometimes because it's a, mm. not, not a very good translation. But, I mean, another point that I picked up on was the fact that uh, immediately after the bombing in Oslo, the police thought that they that there were basically three explosive devices. Now, this is quite interesting because Breivik himself had planned was planning for uh, three bombs, but he wasn't able to produce those bombs. He was only able to produce the the one bomb. Uh, it just simply took him too long to produce it. So, again, I mean, not, nothing conclusive, but I thought that was just another interesting fact there that. They, yeah, they, they thought there were three bombs and that's what he planned for, which would um, support yeah. th- a theory of, um, you know, advanced knowledge or some kind of intelligence about what he was up to. Or supports the, the notion that there were actually multiple bombings. Okay, yeah. Um, because it, it may not have been a, an, an issue of them. I mean, you're, you're right, it's a curious one that that's what he, he was intending apparently intending and planning to do and then that's what they thought had happened and it and it is an, it is odd i mean one explosion how do you confuse one explosion with three explosions mm. um because it's not like um I've, I've made quite a big thing of this in in my coverage of seven seven is that particularly on the day of seven seven itself they were talking about as many as i don't know 15 no maybe not that many maybe as many as 10 or 12 different bombings and okay there were at least officially, there were four and they happened in the middle of uh, tunnels. So people were coming out either end at two different tube stations. So maybe they thought there was more explosions. Maybe you can see how they'd confuse four explosions with six explosions or something like that. But how do you confuse one explosion in one place right outside a government building with three different explosions, presumably in three places? Uh, well, I don't think they actually said three explosions, but they believed that there were 
three devices. So they thought one had gone off and there were another two that they were looking for. I, I think that's that's what they they thought basically. Right, right. So they they were running around trying to find additional bombs that yeah at least officially did, never existed. Yeah, two two other explosive devices, which yeah is exactly what Bravik at one point had had been planning. So unless someone had kind of given them a warning saying that there were additional devices, yeah, you're right. Why, why did they think that? Mm. I mean, you don't automatically suspect if there's been a bombing that there's going to be additional bombs. Generally, your emergency response is to try and sort of get there, help the injured, and, and see if you can find anything that will tell you who did it. Mm. Um, you, why, why would they be wasting resources running around looking for bombs that... I mean, who told them that there were additional bombs? Well, yeah, you're right. Where did they get? Where did that come from? Yeah, just another interesting aspect that's you know worth worth bearing in mind, definitely. Hmm. <laughs> so, have you had any more thoughts about the Bravik case, or, uh, Tom? Well, one of, well, one of the stories that has actually come out of the trial coverage, and the, and the um, the mainstream media did cover this in quite a lot of detail, um, is the shoe throwing. Did you read about this? Yeah, the, the Iraqi guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the relative of one of the victims who who apparently threw his shoe or possibly both his shoes at at, uh, at Breivik in the courtroom and hit in, the lawyer, yeah, and managed to hit the lawyer, yeah. Um, okay, at least they hit a lawyer. At least they didn't hit someone innocent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if they're a lo- if they're a lawyer and they're defending Anders Breivik, I don't have that much sympathy for them. Um, so I can kind of understand the person's frustration. I can't really condone that kind of behavior but at the same time i'm certainly not going to condemn condemn the guy for doing it Mm -hmm. but but this kind of indicates what i mean why is it that that's the story that the mainstream media all jumped on and all decided to report is there you know is there not more going on at this trial Mm. is there not more important things to be to be talking about um it is an it is amusing i'm not denying it is it is amusing that that the guy threw his shoes at him but um I, i just i just think there's so much more at stake um, and this actually actually brings me back to a, a clip I uh, I was going to play. I never got around to playing in one of my radio shows of um, a guy from the EDL called Tommy Robinson. Oh, I don't God. think that's his his real name. Stephen Lennon. By, yeah, he goes by several different names. Yeah. Um, and he was on Newsnight like three days after the attacks. So uh, what would have been twenty fifth of July last year with Paxman. Um, yeah. Yeah, with Paxman. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's a real kind of car crash piece of television um, because, I mean, all, all this EDL guy is trying to do is sort of it, it's it's wonderful to watch because he's caught between this tension, this this wonderful tension between having to condemn the attacks and having to say, you know, we don't support violence in any kind of way. We don't support terrorism in any kind of way. Yeah. And then also sort of warning and going but but something like this is going to happen here it's yeah. you know it, it's only five or ten years away god it's forbid. coming here it's coming here <laughs> yeah but saying god forbid i mean <laughs> it's, it's, and there's actually a really funny moment where he says this and it's it's kind of right at the end of the interview and paxman just goes does his usual thing of going thank thank you for for coming and then goes wait a second <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah that sounds like a threat that sounds yeah. like you're you're threatening us yeah uh, he repeated just, that in other places as well actually he's he's made that veil threat in a, in a couple of places at least yeah um and then this is sort of that that's kind of kind of worrying really yeah. that that this this guy who is trying, I mean, he was trying his best to come across as credible and, you know, just a concerned guy who, who was doing what he felt he needed to be doing in legitimate political activity. Yeah. But it, it, basically the whole thing was just him going, Islam's a threat, Islam's a threat, Islam's a threat, and, and, and you can't be blamed if something like this happens here. Yeah. I, I just thought this is, firstly, why the hell are the BBC giving someone like that airtime? I suppose, you know, they've got to, they've got to report on, lots of different political perspectives so they can claim that they're unbiased i mean they are biased but if they do that they can claim that they aren't yeah um but 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 what a why did they put him up i mean what a terrible spokesman for their movement all he all he seemed to be doing was it was almost like he wanted this to happen here yeah it's almost like he he was kind of uh i mean this is sort of what what Breivik said he was trying to do this whole thing about how he hoped there'd be a backlash against the the nationalist right so that they would then rise up and become more extreme and and fight back even more yeah um and he said in his in his manifesto he calls the edl naive fools because they reject violence supposedly and reject terrorism 
Um, and it's almost like this whole interview with, with Tommy Robinson um, is, is, is almost like he's, he's completely played into Bravik's hands here. Bravik's yeah. called him a naive fool, carried out a terrorist attack, and the guy's gone, well, I'm not a naive fool, I'm condemning what he did, but you can't blame me if I then, or, or someone I know then does this, this here, because it is a real problem and Islam's a real threat. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's, it's just sort of played into exactly what Bravik sort of said he was trying to do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's some questions about Stephen Lennon, uh, Tommy Robinson. I mean, Paul Ray, who was accused of being Richard the Lionhearted, um, mm. definitely thinks that um, Alan Lake is or was Bravik's mentor and that Stephen Lennon has a big part to play in this as well. Um, I mean, the evidence is pretty uh, thin, to be quite honest. But, yeah, he's definitely pointing the finger at Stephen Lennon and Alan Lake as, as being connected to Bravik. And... Yeah, I've seen I've seen that interview and it's it's interesting, yeah. And I mean, it's also very worrying because, of course, Breivik's uh, mentor, Richard the Lionhearted, was an English guy, and Breivik even said, I think sometimes I think that he could have been the guy who started the English Defence League. So these are the people that the police are see- saying don't exist. You know, it's a figment of uh, Breivik's imagination. Well, as we talked about in that show that we did, you know there's not really any reason to to think that it was and who are these people and why aren't the police trying to catch them and why aren't the EDL being investigated for making veiled threats like that you know and and people like um Roberto Moore of the uh, Jewish Defense League who went even further and and basically said I support what Breivik did and it's going to happen again in Britain you know why aren't these people being investigated um well yeah and and, I mean Bravik seems to have drawn inspiration from quite a lot of different people, uh, including uh, Daniel Pipes. You know Daniel Pipes? Yeah. He's this uh, uh, Zionist American academic, really odious, despicable man, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, he is he's the son, incidentally. Well, not, not incidentally. It's not incidental at all. He, he's the um, son of Richard Pipes, who is a... He goes back to the 1970s and kind of the first incarnation of the neoconservatives, the first, you know, when Bush was head of the CIA and when okay. Rumsfeld the first time around and all of that. And they created Team B. Do you know, do you remember this story about Team B and the CIA? I don't know that basically, story actually. Uh, basically the CIA weren't giving the government, uh, drastic enough impressions of the Soviet military capability. So, that was the Team A, the National Intelligence Estimates, the National Intelligence Council in the CIA. That's what they were coming up with. And the government said, no, that's not scary enough. That doesn't give us enough excuse to build even more weapons. That doesn't fit into our agenda. So they set up a separate team, basically, a parallel intelligence analysis team known as Team B. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even the chairman of this was uh, Richard Pipes, Daniel Pipes' father. Okay. Um, and this this is... This is all about how they kind of uh, escalated the perception of the threat for political gain. And if you see, you see this very much again in Daniel Pipes's work, but with him, it's very much it's about Palestine against Israel. It's about the the great threat of Islamic terrorism. It's basically the communists have been replaced by the Islamists, but it's it's the same. It's the same old propaganda. It's the same old story. Mm -hmm. Um, So. Yeah, I I think. Those connections should be investigated, whether, I mean, like you say, the evidence as we have it now is somewhat circumstantial and a bit thin on the ground. Yeah. But that doesn't mean more evidence couldn't be found if there was a proper investigation of these people. Mm-hmm. There may well be much more sort of solid connections than we're aware of at this stage. Um, I also think we need to devote a bit of thought to this whole notion of how, if you like, if Breivik was a right wing nationalist extremist um and he was actually inspired to do this thing in opposition to the immigration into norway and into europe as a whole how much has he been inspired by the work of people like daniel pipes and the work of um the the jewish defense league uh, woman that you were talking about and and on all of these other people pamela geller as well yeah 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 all, all of that um you know how irresponsible are they being not just in after the attack, either failing to condemn it properly or at least condoning it in a way or saying something like this is going to happen elsewhere or 
whatever you know however it is that they've kind of compromised with this attack and and said that almost made their peace with it and been happy about it they've not just done that they've basically laid the groundwork for it they've you know they've they've been creating the atmosphere in which something like that could happen yeah. for a long long time that's it yeah okay tom well we're coming up to the hour now so i think we'll we'll end the show there but it's been an interesting discussion as always and you've been listening to this podcast on resistradio.com uh, maybe you can tell people where they can find uh, your work tom yeah yeah you can find all of my films articles uh, previous interviews all the rest of it at investigatingtheterror.com excellent stuff tom thanks again Cheers, Britt. Take it easy. Cheers. You too. Bye.